This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Two groups clash in two different gospel stories which we will look at today. On one side is the band of Jewish men who think they've found the new Messiah, and on the other is the Roman occupier who thinks that his tribe is the new ruler of Israel. On one side you'll see this leader of fighters meeting on the other side this leader of healers, the leader of overthrowers meeting the king of the Jews. Then there's a second story I'll tell. We'll hear the story of the morning party that marches behind the widow of Nain, and we'll see them following along behind her and her boy's body weeping. Then we'll meet Jesus and his apostles, another crowd coming from a different direction filled with their good news. So you'll have the party of death meeting the party of life, the powerful preacher meeting a powerless widow. In short, these two gospel passages bring us right into the middle of questions about what it means to be human, from slavery to military service to life and death to social injustice. So let's get right to it. These stories are back to back in the Gospel of Luke, but they're also told, at least the centurion's servant story is told in other gospels. So what I'll do is I'll read Jesus heals a centurion's servant from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. And I'll read, Jesus raises the widow's son at Nain from the Gospel of Luke. As he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant is dying, paralyzed at home, in terrible distress. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered him, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard him, he marveled, and said to those who followed him, Truly I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west, and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, be it done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus raises the widow's son at Nain. Soon afterward, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the city, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. And he came and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man sat up and began to speak. And he gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, 
a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus at this point in the story is not far from his home base of Capernaum, which is near his childhood home of Nazareth. He's just given the Sermon on the Mount and has already attracted a large crowd that's following along with him. And we get these wonderful stories about the miracles of Jesus. The first one is the story about Jesus interacting with the centurion, who gets his name from the fact that he was a military officer in charge of a hundred soldiers. Centurions were important soldiers with lots of experience. This was a true soldier, a military man who had been involved in armed conflicts probably all over the world, representing the oppressive Roman power. But it's interesting how in the New Testament, several centurions are mentioned, and they're always mentioned as honorable men. One centurion gives voice to the affirmation of Jesus' greatness at the crucifixion. He says, truly, this was the Son of God. Peter meets a centurion who is called devout and God-fearing, who gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And Paul is a prisoner on board a ship that's about to get into a wreck, and his jailers want to kill him so that he won't swim away. But a centurion intervenes and saves him so that he can swim away instead. So each of these centurions is a good and honest man. So right away you get a sense of what Jesus Christ thinks of military personnel. War is a terrible no-win reality, and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He clearly has come to bring peace on earth. But military personnel are honored and honorable in the New Testament. St. John Paul II reflected this same kind of spirit when he met with members of the military during the Jubilee year 2000. In particular, he spoke with the families of military members and said words that are even more poignant when you realize that John Paul himself was in the home of Captain Wotia, his dad. He said, quotes, The first pagans to be baptized by Peter were members of a soldier's family. It is not easy to be a soldier's family, because even the hardships of his mission must be shared. Yet the family is the principal support of each one of you. One defends what one loves. And where does one learn to love peace and life, if not in the family? Therefore, dear families, feel fully involved in this mission and collaborate in safeguarding justice and peace. Who better than you, dear soldiers, can testify to the violence and disruptive forces of evil present in the world? The role of sentinel who scans the horizon to avert danger and promote justice and peace everywhere befits each of you." End quote. So Jesus loves military members and their families, and following him, Christians love military members and their families also. What constitutes a legitimate use of force in an armed conflict is a separate question, and Christians don't love all of those choices. And that's going to come up later. But for now, we're just talking about the calling of of a soldier itself, and that is a noble calling. This passage also raises the issue of slavery, because the word here is either servant or slave or boy or young servant, depending on which gospel you're reading and which translation you're reading. So it's important to understand what the New Testament thinks of slavery. 
Too often it has been misquoted and misused by people in support of slavery. So it's important to understand what it says. In the New Testament, you'll see St. Paul preach to slaves that they should be obedient, just as he preached to citizens of unjust Roman rulers that they should be obedient. But Paul also urged Christians to show kindness to slaves beyond what is owed to mere property. He made one enslaved man a brother and told us that we are neither slave nor free if we're Christians. So it's difficult to track church teaching on slavery because countries have embraced various economic arrangements that bind laborers to bosses that are sort of like slavery, but not quite slavery, or not what we think of as slavery, but maybe what an earlier time in the world thought was slavery. These include serfs, indentured servants, apprentices, military service up to and including our day, wards of the state, prisoners, those sentenced to community service, adult work release programs. Certainly, though, the kind of chattel slavery that we know in the United States has always been denounced. The church father, St. John Chrysostom, in the 4th century, called it the fruit of covetousness, of degradation, of savagery. And as racial slavery grew in the 15th century, so did the church's denunciations of it, with papal threats to excommunicate slavers coming as early as 1453. Uh, So that's well before Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. But then repeated again and again for centuries. That's the good news. The church has said for centuries that people involved in slavery should be excommunicated. The bad news is that the church did not excommunicate many people because of slavery that we can tell. It's kind of like the teaching on abortion now, something that the church condemns but tolerates. The church definitely condemned slavery then but tolerated even politicians who promoted it. And the church definitely condemns abortion today, but tolerates even some politicians who promote it. But you can see what the New Testament's attitude towards slavery is in this gospel that we're considering today. The centurion is clearly a good guy because he cares for the health of a slave, a servant, a slave. There was nothing in ancient morality that would have made that admirable. So this gospel is one of the early texts of Western civilization that begins to look at slavery in a whole new light. The centurion is clearly filled with concern for this servant who is in terrible distress. We never hear exactly what the illness is, but we hear he's paralyzed. We hear that he's in a kind of a tortuous pain. You also find the issue of uncleanness, both in the centurion story and in the story of the widow from Nain. Normally, a Jew would not enter the house of a Gentile because that would incur ritual uncleanness. But Jesus here himself proposes going to the house of the centurion to cure the slave. Jesus, as we will discover, is immune to this kind of uncleanness, and after him, we all become immune to this kind of uncleanness. One great thing about this gospel, though, is the way it shows how Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. He has faith that doesn't set any conditions. He has faith that is willing to do everything on Christ's terms. A faith that believes that Jesus can act from a distance, 
clearly he doesn't think of him as some kind of healer, a faith healer who has to be present to do his thing with a power that's not determined by space and time, like the rest of everything we experience in the maze. He clearly sees Jesus as somebody who is outside of that whole matrix. This is the first of 10 miracle stories Matthew will give, and we see Jesus overcoming sin, disease, demons, and death. And Jesus often heals with his touch, but sometimes, as here, he heals with just a word, making him a godlike figure and, as the gospel will reveal later, indeed, a divine figure. And with each new miracle, you'll see his crowds grow and the ire of his opponents grow. What I find fascinating here is how this comes right after the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. It's as if Gospel wanted us to hear what Jesus taught and then immediately let us see what this actually meant in Jesus' life. So Jesus said, love your enemies, and here we have him reaching out to one of the occupiers of his native land to help him. Jesus said, blessed is he who mourns, and here we have him responding to the care and concern that the centurion is showing for his uh, slave. Jesus released us from slavery to sin, and here's a story about a slave being healed. Jesus told us, ask and you will receive, and here we have the centurion asking and receiving as promised, even if the Lord doesn't actually come to his house. There's so much. The, our Father says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here we have Jesus saying, Go, be it done to you as you have believed. And this ends radically like the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll recall, people were astounded by his teaching because he taught as one with authority. Well, here he's acting as one who with authority, and people are astonished at his actions. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not those who say, Lord, Lord, will come to heaven, but those who do the will of his Father. And here, a centurion, who's a pagan, is somebody who Jesus says will be with him in heaven, even while many of the chosen people will come and not be allowed in. So it's a radical gospel that blew people's minds at the time, and even at this far remove can blow our minds. You can also compare the centurion here to Mary, Elizabeth said, Blessed is she who believed that the word of God would be fulfilled. And in the centurion, we see, Blessed is he who believes that the word of God will be fulfilled, right? It's the same type of thing that's going on. And as Mary turned to the servants and said, Do whatever he tells you, we get here the faith of the centurion who says, In the same way that he can tell a person under his authority to do something, Jesus can tell kind of the natural world, the forces of nature to do as he tells them. And just as Mary had her fiat, we have here the be it done of Jesus to the centurion. The centurion's even Christ-like in this way. Both are these compassionate men of authority who nonetheless care for weak people who are under their uh, care. And to use Erasmo Leva Maricacus's phrase, in communion the church is molding us all to have the mind of the centurion. We repeat the centurion's words at every mass, but we change the word servant to soul. We say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed.
I mentioned before about the double meanings of healings in the gospel. The leprosy that was healed was kind of a stand-in for sin or a, a sign of sin. That goes for this tortuous, paralyzing illness that this servant is suffering. Our soul is sick like the centurion's soul, but a word of Jesus can make it right. The centurion has built a house for prayer for the Jews, we hear in the Luke version. He didn't consider his own house a house for Jesus to visit. Maybe it wasn't until Jesus rose. But our own soul is in the same situation. Our own soul is unworthy for Jesus to visit, so we have to pray to make it so. In the 400, St. Maximus of Turin wrote, See how the devout centurion becomes worthier to receive health as he confesses that he is unworthy. In considering his dwelling unacceptable, he has made it the more honorable and acceptable. End quote. You know, when the centurion says these words to Jesus, Jesus marvels at his faith. That's the same verb the Gospels will use later to say people marveled at the miracles of Jesus. In the 300s, the early Christian writer Ephraim the Syrian wrote how remarkable this is, saying, Jesus marveled at the centurion. God marveled at a human being, end quote. We'll say more about the miracle of the Eucharist later, but St. John Paul II says we should be amazed at it. It's remarkable to think that we are amazed at Jesus Christ truly present in the sacrament, and so we imitate the centurion, and if we imitate him well, then at the same time, Jesus is amazed at us, it marvels at our faith. And that's only one of the two stories we plan to talk about. The other is the story of the widow from Nain. Luke provides evocative details that allow you to picture the scene. Jesus is journeying to a village with his disciples and a large crowd is following him. You can picture them walking along, spirits high, eyes riveted on the Son of God. As one large crowd approaches the gates of the city, another large crowd is coming out quotes, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was with her, End quote. You can easily imagine the meeting of these two crowds at the gate. Suddenly, the followers of Jesus grow quiet, respectful for the dead. The funeral procession of mourners, filled with pity and respect for the widow, looks up with surprise to see another crowd, maybe a bigger crowd on the road. The sound of weeping fills the air. This place, Nain, is a small Galilean village six miles southeast of Nazareth. The body is being carried out on a bier. People weren't buried in coffins back then, so to picture this, you have to picture a body on a stretcher, possibly in a basket, but it's also possible that it's just laid out on the bier for all to see. With the body is a crowd a funeral procession probably involved family, friends, and neighbors, but also unattached mourners, as well as musicians. Jesus approaches the widow and he says, do not weep. This is a very strange thing to say at a Semitic funeral, where public weeping is a cleansing act. And if you've ever seen a Middle Eastern funeral, it's really something that people do not hold back in their expressions of grief. A follower of Jesus, having been electrified by his Sermon on the Mount, might also notice that this is a departure from Jesus' advice, blessed are they who mourn, and blessed are you who weep. He's literally telling her not to weep. 
this strange advice is accompanied by a very strange action. Jesus approaches the bier and touches it, which is a shocking gesture. Contact with the dead makes you unclean, according to the law. What Jesus does is something that you must not do. The two crowds would have had two very different reactions to this. Those following Jesus would see it as a sign that this man really was special. The normal rules don't apply to him. Those following the dead young man would be riveted, wondering what this could possibly mean, how this was going to end. The bereaved mother has lots of reasons to be sad. Uh, She's going to face really great hardship with the death of her son. In the society where she was living, being without a male family member was going to make her reliant on the charity of others. The law says in Deuteronomy 26, When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. So she's basically going to enter this kind of um, religious welfare state. This is why Luke says, The Lord looked at her and had compassion on her. It's interesting that Luke calls him the Lord using the same phraseology a Jew would use to refer to God without saying his name. It fits especially here where Jesus shows his power over life and death. Everyone would have heard Jesus say, Young man, I tell you, arise. The young man immediately sits up and begins to speak. It'd be fascinating to know exactly what he said, but the gospel doesn't say what he said. It says only that Jesus gave him to his mother, which is a remarkable phrase, Jesus gave him to his mother. We can picture that beautiful reunion also. One thing that is astounding about the story is not just the fact that he brought a dead person back to life, but that he did it so easily. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 17, the great prophet Elijah raises a widow's son also, but he had to take the body and carry it to an upper chamber, then stretch himself out over the body three times, crying out, to God. In that story, too, he uses the same words. He delivered him to his mother. He gave him to his mother. That's like an image of birth, kind of reminiscent of what Nicodemus was saying about a man being born again, only actually happening here where this man is brought to life again and then given to his mother. Elisha also raises a widow's child in 2 Kings chapter 4, and it's even harder for him. He has to stretch over him and make contact with his eyes and with his mouth. Then he gives the child back to the mother in the same way. Jesus has to do none of that. His words were all he needed to heal the centurion slave, and his words are all he needs here. Consider the two crowds once again. On one side you have death a centurion dedicated to battle in the first story and mourners crushed by a death in the second. These are stories from the life of Jesus, but they are also word pictures of the battle between the way of life and death that all generations who follow Jesus have faced. And the two crowds in the gospel illustrate the same thing. The centurion leads soldiers for the emperor. Jesus leads apostles for the father. The apostles were following an extraordinary life-giving young man. The mourners were following a dead young man. In our day, these two crowds are still meeting, the culture of death and the culture of life. On the one hand, you have people who believe that death is a possible answer to the problems of the world, the death of the unborn, 
the death in war, also increasingly a number of people who consider suicide a way out. And on the other hand, you have people who believe that life is the only answer. I think the fact that the culture has moved on these issues became evident after Robin Williams' death. Uh, Robin Williams committed suicide and Shepard Smith did what people always used to do when speaking about a suicide. He called the comedian's death cowardly. Well, Smith was widely and loudly denounced for the remark and he quickly apologized. And the critics are right. It was insensitive. It has shows insensitivity to the mentally ill. But shouldn't we also be willing to stigmatize suicide, especially at a time when so many vulnerable people are likely to imitate it? Around that same time came the articles praising the decision of Brittany Maynard, a young terminally ill woman, to take her life. Her decision was greeted as a great, brave choice worthy of the cover of People magazine, which is a bold new posture for America, not only tolerating suicide, but celebrating it. Now we have headlines that are coming out of Canada, as I record this, Canada expanding assisted suicide law to the mentally ill. And then there was a Christian publication that said, Canada euthanized 10,000 people in 2021. Has death lost its sting? Meanwhile, there's a recent Pew survey that found that only a small minority think doctors should do everything possible to save them. Nearly two-thirds approved of suicide to end suffering. Six in 10 of those surveyed had not thought much about their end-of-life decisions, and that was even among those aged 75 or older, less than half have given it much thought. Not only do we not like to think about death, a breakdown in community also means that we don't really have to. Pew said a solid majority reported that no one particularly close to them had died in the last five years. Now, this survey came before COVID, but even then, I think it's indicative of the fact that we aren't that close to people, and that means we do not mourn, and we also have lost some sense of how tragic it is when someone dies. America's hatred of suffering is another reason we have become kind of blasé about death. Pew's survey makes clear that we would rather die than suffer. It's not death we fear most, it seems. It's discomfort. People used to be against religion because they thought it was all about dreading this life and desiring another life and not getting the most out of this life. But in some cases, the opposite seems to be the case. Religious people are more likely to embrace this life and the next. This is why the vision of Jesus Christ is so important. He gives people meaning and purpose in their lives, which delivers not an existence that is meaningless without pleasure, but a life in which even suffering can make an impact. I've mentioned before about the poem I found that uh, my mother had left on her desk when she died. It's written by Edna St. Vincent Millay, who was an atheist poet at the early 20th century. And it didn't comfort me much at first that this is what my mother left behind. But now I think it does comfort me because it shows that my mother had the proper attitude toward death. Here's what it says. Down, 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 into the darkness of the grave, gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, the kind. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. I am not resigned to the shutting away of loving hearts in the hard ground. So it is, and so it will be, for so it has been, time out of mind. 
Into the darkness they go, the wise and the lovely, crowned with lilies and with laurel they go, but I am not resigned. That's the right attitude toward death, I think, and it's good to remember that we walk behind the one who agrees so wholeheartedly that he became man just to do battle with death and to defeat it. And that's the crowd that we're in. St. Augustine said that mystically, the widow in the story is Mother Church, weeping for those who are dead in sin and carried beyond the safety of her gates. The multitudes looking on will praise the Lord when sinners rise again from the dead and are restored to their mother. That's where we all are. We're marching through space and time, past the graves of those who died before us and who we forgot, leading the generation that will die after us and will, in time, forget us. It all seems meaningless until you turn your eyes to Jesus, the one leading the charge for light and life in Galilee, and the one leading the charge for light and life today. He entered our world to give us at last a way up and out through his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at excorde.org.